Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas to you. We've got a lot to cover this morning, and so I'm going to start as soon as I can so that we can get most of this covered. This is a Sunday I've been looking forward to because... I'm really interested in what I'm going to say this morning. I hope you will be too. And I hope you'll learn some things you've never thought about before and the implications, especially the implications for the incarnation on our everyday lives today. But let me open with a word of prayer and then we'll get into it. Um, feel free during this talk or lecture, whatever you want to call it, to raise your hand if you've got a question. If I need to clarify something, I'll stop and answer it. I had a professor in seminary, you raise your hand, you ask the question, you say, I'll get to that at the end of class. And the whole year, he would lecture right up to the bell, so he never answered the question. <laughs> I won't do that. I mean, raise your hand, and we'll, I'll stop, and we'll answer your questions. But let's uh, open in a, in a word of prayer. Lord God, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we find ourselves still waiting, waiting for your sure and certain second coming. And so this morning, Lord, as we should pray every day, we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come soon, come quickly. And should you decide to return today or in our lifetimes or, uh, or this year or while we're still on the face of the planet, may you find us faithful, um, expectant, and watchful. Lord, uh, use what... I'm going to say today to build up the body of Christ that we all might appreciate Christmas, but also all of life better, uh, looking at life through the lens of this incarnation. And keep me from any error, and uh, we are thankful that you're a God who is not aloof, who's left us to our own devices, but has made a way for our ultimate salvation, and for eternal life in your unveiled glorious presence. For that we are thankful. And we make our prayer and offer you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 1, verse 1. You may not even need to turn because you probably have this memorized. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we've talked already about, you know, the ultimate philosophical question is, why is there something rather than nothing? And uh, atheists would say, well, there's always been something that matter. The universe is eternal. Um, many theists, particularly deists, would say, that's true. Uh, but there's also a God, but he just took what was already there and refashioned it. They really don't really think that through because if matter always was there, that means matter is eternal and only God is eternal. That means matter is God uh, to some extent. Uh, Christians have always said um, there's always been something. Not material, but there's always been someone, and that's the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's always existed as um, in that triune community. Um, and then God spoke, and the material universe came into being. Uh, and, you know, we read this, God created the heavens and the earth, and my question is, just how much matter did God create? Um, and it's interesting what we're finding out scientifically. There's a whole lot more matter out there than we ever thought there was. Did you see last week they discovered a new planet in our galaxy? Um, called Centaur B. Um, it's bigger than Jupiter, which is the largest planet in our solar system. Uh, this is not in our solar system. It's outside of it, but it's, it's in an area of our galaxy where, according to what scientists uh, believe by the laws of physics, no planet that size could exist. But there it is. And uh, so you never know what God's up to. He's not confined by our laws. But let me give you a few details um, uh, about what we're finding out. See, as our technology gets better, we're, we're discovering that God uh, has made a whole lot more than we at first thought. 
The universe is estimated to be about 13.82 billion years old. Now, how do they figure that out? Um, it's too detailed to go into today. But that's when they think the boom, Big Bang, happened. Scientists today, whereas scientists who are not Christians for the past couple of centuries, about four centuries, have been saying, you can't get something from nothing. And that seems to be reasonable, rational. But Christians have always believed, well, and Augustine hammered out this doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, that God created the material universe out of absolutely nothing. He just spoke and boom. But now, Big Bang Theory says, this guy Augustine was right. Secular scientists are saying, there's a finite moment in time and space when there was no matter and suddenly, boom, there is matter. And this universe is constantly still expanding. Uh, and our best technology today is the Hubble telescope. That was launched in 1990. It's had a few upgrades, last one in 2009. And right now, Hubble is revealing somewhere between 100 and 200 billion galaxies that are out there. Now, there are other scientists saying, if you do the math, what Hubble's revealing, it's showing that there probably is more than that, probably around two trillion galaxies out there. I mean, I'm boggled by, you know, what the House and Senate are trying to pass when they're talking about trillions of dollars. And Well, think of trillions of galaxies um, that are probably bigger than ours. Um, and this universe is still expanding, and it's doing so at the speed of light. That means every moment we have less and less technology to figure out what's out there, except our technology is uh, improving, and we've just developed the James Webb Telescope. It was launched last year, and we're just now trying to figure out how to use it, and so we should learn a whole lot more. Have you ever thought about how many stars are in the universe? Um, how many cups of water do you think are in all of the oceans of the world? A lot, right? That's about how many stars there are if you multiply that by 10. Uh, <laughs> there's trillions of stars out there. Um, our Milky Way galaxy probably has around 100 billion stars. They're all bigger than the sun. How many stars in the entire universe? It's about 200 billion trillion. And when God spoke, he meant business. He created a whole lot of material stuff out there. Um, yeah. And he knows every star by name. I know. That's why I said one week I said, you know, if you see these things where, you know, for Christmas or somebody's birthday, you can name a star and they'll send you a certificate and you can give to you yeah, that star up there has your name on um that's blasphemy god's already named that star you can't rename it you don't have any right to do that uh yeah that's shows you i mean i i worry about having a lot of grandchildren some of you do you have like 15 how do you keep track of them god can keep track of 200 billion trillion stars and he knows every one of their names and he knows their birthday, too. It all happened at the same time. Um, I told this story before. I'm going to tell it again because I love it. Teddy Roosevelt had a habit of entertaining visitors to the White House by asking them to come out on a clear night and stargaze. And he, here's what he would say to him. I didn't say this. I have the direct quote from his secretary who wrote it down. He, he'd have him sit there and look up, and he would point uh, to a faint spot in, of light mist beyond the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. Then he would say, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It's, a, it's as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies. Now, see, he didn't have the Hubble telescope, so he was way off on how many there are. It's 700, 750,000 light years away. 
It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. Then he would say, now, I think we are small enough. Let's go to bed. Uh, you know, it's mind-boggling how much matter that God created. So, God, you could say, has gone wild in creating matter, and he loves it. The Bible tells us that he loves his creation, and he's never rescinded that verdict. I don't know about you, but you know, when I watch TV, I, there seems to be a lot of talk about, are there UFOs out there? Uh, I would encourage you to read the book, The Privileged. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you've thought through that. Has it made you rethink that at all? Because one, remember how we started out, Jesus could come any moment. Well, certainly, now you're expanding the descendants by trillions. Yeah. yeah. And, or is that all just metaphors? That's all we need to know. Yeah. My, my sense offhand, how many grains of sand? I, the right. earth would have to con continue for a gazillion years to before the population, let alone the Jewish population, the Jewish population is shrinking. So I think that's more uh, God's hyperbole, or he's just saying, it's going to be a lot of people. That's more symbolic rather than literal, because I don't see how you could have as many people as grains of sand on the beach, but that's my personal view. Good question. Okay, um, yeah, somebody else have a question? Okay, what about UFOs? I encourage you to read the book, The Privileged Planet, which goes into great detail, and you don't have to be a scientist to read this, that it's by Guillermo Gutierrez, who's an astrophysicist, I think he's at Iowa State University. He's a committed Christian. He doesn't talk about God in the book. He really unpacks what scientists today, secular scientists, call the anthropic principle, that it looks like the entire universe that we know of is so finely tuned to, set, uh, to support life on one tiny planet down in the corner of this galaxy known as the Milky Way. That if you took one star way out there and moved it an inch, it, it would all fall apart. So anthropic, anthropos Greek for man or human, hum, humanity. And, uh, of course, the secular scientists say it just looks that way. Of course, it can't be that way, but it just looks that way. Um, but Gutierrez shows how the way our planet is positioned, it goes into great detail to show how if it was somewhere else or off a little bit, life couldn't exist here, and that what we can see in the rest of the universe, there's no way that there's any other planet that could support life. Um, now, I can't prove that, he can't prove that, but it sure looks that way. So I don't think there's other life out there. Uh, it does raise the question though, have extraterrestrials ever visited our planet? Well, of course they have. If you know your Bible, angels have visited, and then the ultimate extraterrestrial, Jesus. I mean, <laughs> that's what we're talking about, the incarnation. God become man visiting our planet. He visited. He left. He came for a while and then left. So yeah, there have been, uh, I don't know what these UFOs are, but read the book of Ezekiel and they were seeing them back then too. So they're, maybe they're of God. Oh, they're sure they're of God. But um, anyway, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a trilogy called the Space Trilogy. And the first volume is called Out of the Silent Planet. And Lewis plays with the idea that there are beings inhabiting the whole universe, but they've never sinned. And the Earth is the only planet where sin has infected. That's why it's called the silent planet. It sits down in this dark corner of the universe and is not really in communication with the rest of the universe. It's kind of an interesting concept. I don't think Lewis would say that's gospel truth. But it's an it makes for an interesting story. So anyway, let's take a look now at the Incarnation. I want to zero in on how the Incarnation is eternal. It happened, and it never stops happening. 
Maybe you've not considered this, maybe you had, but turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. These are great Christmas verses. I'm going to read verse 1 and then verses 14 through 16. Notice the parallel to Genesis 1-1 here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Greek word there is logos. Um, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. So here, you know, incarnate Word college comes from the idea that the Word of God becomes incarnate. And then with verse 14, And the Word became flesh, carne, meat, skin, flesh and bones, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So here we have... Um, this idea that this infinite, eternal God, creator of time and space, actually does the impossible. Lewis calls it the grand miracle. Uh, the Greeks and Romans say it's an impossibility. The Jews would say it's scandalous, this idea that God would actually come, take on human flesh, and dwell um, amongst us. You know, one of the dilemmas in theology is um, we all want a transcendent God, an infinite, eternal, totally sovereign God. But that kind of God's not very uh, personal. We also want an up-close and personal God. In other words, the imminence. We want transcendence and imminence. If you study the Muslim faith, it's all transcendent. Um, God is this actually kind of a sovereign tyrant, and you better shape up or you're history and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds you have hope or you better martyr yourself that's the only other way you can make it to heaven um, but most of us we don't want a faraway God who's we can't relate to we want an imminent God so how can you bring those two things together um, that's what the incarnation does here you have the infinite eternal God actually entering into his own creation and becoming one of us. So like Hebrews says, Jesus has been tempted in every way we are. He knows what it's like to be a human being, except he didn't sin. That's the only exception. Now the incarnation, we usually think of the incarnation at Christmas time, and then we forget about it the rest of the time. That's not a good way uh, theologically to look at life. The incarnation is about a lot more than just Christmas. In fact, it's about everything else after Christmas. I'm going to take you a little, on a little incarnational journey. Some of this you're, you're going to go, oh, well, that's obvious. Why didn't I ever think of that? And some of this may be totally new to you. Think about what happens when the angel Gabriel visits Mary and announces that she's going to be pregnant. She's a virgin. Uh, she was probably from 12 to maybe 16 years old. We don't know for sure, but that's about the age that women got married back in those days. She was not a hayseed who thought the stork brings babies. Um, she looks at Gabriel and says, wait a minute, you know. Uh, I'm not a, a reproductive physiologist, but I do know that I haven't had a relationship with a man at all, and I know how babies are made. And Gabriel says, you're going to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And I told you about that medieval painting that's kind of odd, but it's really good theology. It's Gabriel speaking to Mary. And you have this dove, Holy Spirit, flying into her ear. Again, God creates the universe by speaking. And that painting is saying, Here's the word, audible word, entering Mary, and the result is the virgin conception. You know, we talk about the virgin birth. That's really a misnomer. Jesus is born just like any other baby. It's the virgin conception that's the miracle. And, you know, we talked last week about, did Jesus ever appear in human form? We can't be sure, but I'm open to it. If so, what's different between that and the incarnation. Well, here's the difference. 
back then, I guess, if Jesus appeared, he just could take on human form or would appear to be human form. Here you have the infinite, eternal God of the universe suddenly become, becoming fertilized egg, zygote, embryo, as the cells are multiplying, and then finally a, a baby. I mean, he went through, he capitulate, recapitulates every stage of life that you and I have been through. So he takes on real human flesh. And he lives a real life. You know, Jesus could feel pain. Probably if the COVID virus was back there, he might have gotten it. Um, he lived a bodily life. And when he dies, it's a bodily death. If they had an uh, electrocardiogram back in those days and went up to him on the cross and put it on, it would be flatlined. He died a real death. He didn't swoon and, you know, came to in the tomb. He was dead as a doornail, and the Romans made sure that he was dead. Usually they broke the legs of everybody on the cross to make sure they're dead. They came to Christ, jammed a spear into him, saw that blood and water was coming out of his lungs. They realized he'd already drowned, and so they didn't even need to break his legs. They knew he was dead, and he was really dead. And then something unusual happens on the third day, and here we have Easter. Now we've gone from... Christmas to Easter, and Jesus rises materially, bodily, flesh and blood. Now, liberals in the Christian church will want to debate that. Well, it doesn't really matter that Jesus rose bodily. What's important is that somehow after the death of Christ, the spirit of Christ arose in the hearts of the disciples. That is a bunch of malarkey, my friends. Um... I never say the resurrection of Jesus without sadly having to put the adjective bodily in front of it. I always say the bodily resurrection of Christ. Because there's a lot of people claiming to be Christians out there who don't say it's necessary to believe in a bodily resurrection. Yes, it is. Don't take my word for it. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14, 15. The Apostle Paul goes to great lengths. I'm not, the whole chapter is saying if you don't believe the bodily resurrection of Christ, you might as well pack up and go sell shoes. You're done for. Our whole faith is a crock, and you are most to be pitied. You're still dead in your sins, and you're headed for hell. That's basically what he says through the whole chapter. It's about a bodily resurrection. I don't know why that's such a problem for people. You know, in our... Um, in the Apostles' Creed, in the, in the old Maroon hymn book we had, there was one phrase in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, and they had an asterisk, asterisk there. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, it said, some churches omit this. That seemed to be offensive to some people. It was in the original creed, and we have always said it here at First Press. I, uh, one time in seminary, I said to one of my professors, I said, you know, we could solve all the theological problems in the church, if we just put an asterisk after every phrase of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Some churches omit this. Um, you know, the virgin birth, some churches omit this. Well, don't omit the bodily resurrection of Christ. Matter is good. You and I are not Gnostics. Any idea of a non-bodily resurrection is a Gnostic idea. It's spiritualizing the faith that God has materialized. Paul. Oh. Yeah. Why is the Nicene Creed eliminated he went into hell? You know, I don't know. You have to ask Athanasius, who's one of the <laughs> But uh, the Apostles' Creed's probably older than the Nicene Creed. So I don't know. The, you know, the, the creeds don't have everything in there. And some have some things that others don't. So at that Usually the creeds were written in response to robust heresies in the church that were floating around. And the Nicene Creed was basically to shoot down the heresy that Jesus was not fully God and fully man. That's what they really hammer in on. So I don't know why they left it out. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So. And uh, nobody knows exactly really what it means that he descended into hell. Um, I think, you know, whatever hell is, 
You don't have to worry about it because whatever it is, Christ went there, took the full punishment that hell's all about upon himself, so you don't have to worry about it. Um, there's cryptic verses in First Peter that Christ, after he died, went and preached to the, the souls in Sheol. Is that hell? Well, the Jews didn't equate Sheol with hell. Kind of says that people that back in Noah's day get a second chance. It's very cryptic. And I wouldn't encourage anybody to base you know, their faith on that exact, you know, and say, oh, I know what that means. Um, what I believe is, is that hell, he descended into hell on the cross. That at the moment when he cried out, it is finished, whatever hell is had been totally sucked into Christ and he experienced it in, in, in silver. So, um, so we don't want to put too much weight on that. The important thing is he bodily then rose from the grave. And then he ascended, that ascension window I've talked about. Um, after I left Highland Park Prayers, they gave me a sabbatical to Reform Seminary in Dallas for a year. And I studied the incarnation through the eyes of the patristic fathers, the early church fathers. Um, I'd never learned much about them in seminary. We only looked at them when, they, when we studied the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed. What I learned is, um, you know, the, the ascension is the flip side of the incarnation, where God actually becomes physical, enters into time and space, and then the Eastern Orthodox Church really emphasizes the, the joy and the glory of Christ's bodily ascension because it takes our human flesh and elevates it into eternity, which is another way of saying, you know, we should never look at our bodies as bad. They are works of art. Yeah, they've been defaced, and they're finite, and we're sinners, and all that stuff, but we are an artwork of God. The human body is, and now our flesh, instead of God putting it down, that's bad, that's the Gnostic idea, he has elevated it now into eternity through Christ's resurrection body. And so we probably ought to celebrate the ascension more than we do. In fact, we hardly ever celebrate it at all. Um, and then Christ promises that one day he's going to return. And it's going to be not him showing up as a spirit. His resurrection body. You know, he came out of the tomb in a body that had continuity and discontinuity with his pre-crucifixion body. He was not a spirit. Remember, he appears to the disciples, and they're, they're thinking he's some kind of spook. And so he says, hey, give me something to eat. Do ghosts eat meat or fish or whatever? No. Okay, give me a piece of fish. And, you know, Christ eats it. He says, come and feel me. Thomas, who's doubting. Put your finger in my wounds. Look at this. Does that look like a ghost to you? No, that's, that's, that, that's where the spirit went in. There was a, you could recognize Jesus. You could feel him. You could hear his voice. Continuity with his pre-crucifixion body. But there was some discontinuity. His body was transformed into a resurrection body like yours and mine are going to be transformed into. He could appear and disappear at will. How do you do that? The doors were locked. The windows were closed. All of a sudden, there he is. Somehow this new resurrection body could defy the conventional laws of physics as we know them. Apparently he could change his appearance. He's on the, uh, the road to Emmaus with disciples and talking to them. They don't recognize him until at the end of the day he breaks bread and suddenly their eyes are open. And Paul says Jesus' resurrection, physical, material, fleshy body will be the, um, the precursor to what's going to happen to us. We're going to have the exact same kind of bodies except for one thing. We're not going to be deity. Uh, we will still just be creation. We're not going to be creator. 
Jesus is creator. But we will have bodies no, that are physical, material, fleshly, but no longer susceptible to disease or death, or apparently pain, no more tears. How does that work? I don't know. That's God's problem to figure out. But I'm looking forward to this guy with two hip replacements, a knee replacement, and three fused joints um, in my body. I'm looking forward to that resurrection body one day. Now, here's something that you may or may not have thought about. There's no indication in Scripture that Jesus ever gives up his fleshly resurrection body. Now, that raises a theological question for me. In fact, Scripture's pretty clear that Christ is with the Father in heaven right now. So you've got Holy Spirit, Spirit, Father, Spirit, and Jesus, flesh. How does the Trinity, again, that's God's problem, not mine, but if God is God, that is not a problem for him. And Jesus is going to have this fleshly body like ours throughout eternity, which is, I think, God's way of saying, not only am I going to tabernacle with you, dwell among you, but I'm going to look and feel and sound just like you. Talk about imminence. We will be in the unveiled glorious presence of the, the unveiled presence of the bodily resurrected Christ for eternity. Now, salvation is not just about getting your soul saved. What transpired on the cross has implications for every molecule of the universe, all those 200 billion trillion stars. It says in Scripture, read it in Romans 8, the whole creation, not part of your creation, not just human beings, the whole creation groans, waiting for its transformation. I believe that means that God on the cross accomplished something that at the end of time is going to restore the entire universe to its original pristine um, existence, also the planet Earth. Read Revelation 21, you can pretty much make the case. I think it's slam dunk. Not everybody does, but I do. That heaven, which right now exists and God lives there, but there's going to be something beyond heaven, the fulfilled kingdom of God when Jesus returns and if we're alive, we get resurrection bodies. If we're dead, we get resurrection bodies. Let me ask you a question. Do Christians believe in reincarnation? Yes. Not like Hindus, you know, where you're going to come back as a squirrel if you've been a bad boy, or, you know, not like Shirley MacLaine, you know. Notice all those people that believe in reincarnation, they were always somebody famous. They were like Pocahontas or... Alexander, they were never a chimney sweep. Yeah, I find that interesting. Um, literally, we do. Okay, let's say I die today. My body remains here. I'm in a state of being, we call it the intermediate state. Uh, I'm in heaven, in the unveiled glorious presence of Christ and the Father and the Spirit. But I'm something that God, that's not a part of originally God's intention for me. The Bible knows nothing of a whole human being as spirit apart from body, or as body without a spirit. God's vision of a human being from the beginning, and you can argue all the way to eternity, is a soul-body integral thing. You can't separate them. But we are separated at death. Okay, I'm die I've died, I'm in the presence of Christ. Jesus returns. What happens to me? I get reincarnated. I get re-enfleshed, re-physicality, re-materialized with a resurrection body. So, I, I mean, I'm saying this playfully. I don't believe in reincarnation that the way people usually think, but we are literally reincarnated. Christ is not. He never gives up his incarnation. He never has to be reincarnated. He keeps it forever. And I believe heaven is going to be a recreation of the earth and all of its pristine beauty. And for some reason, we can no longer mess it up again. What keeps us from doing an Adam and Eve and turn, 
All I can say is I believe something must have transpired on the cross at a cosmic level that reconstitutes us as bodily beings and yet, and still free and able to make choices, but we will never choose against God from then on. And again, I don't know how that works, and I can't prove it to you, but I think that's probably true. Um, so we're going to spend our, our eternity not floating around you know, on clouds, some of spirits. It's going to be a very carne existence. And, okay, God's verdict on the earth was everything is beautiful. I think there are going to be trees, animals. Is your dog, Sam, going to be there? I don't, there's going to be dogs. I know my dog, Bo, will be there. Um, but we might be surprised when this dog comes up wagging his tail. Um, I like to say this. If there's a suggestion box in the fulfilled kingdom of God, it will remain eternally empty. There's nothing you will need or want. Everything you're... I like to say if Christ appeared to you today and said, look it, I'm going to allow you to design the fulfilled kingdom like you want. I'll give you six months, write down everything. And I'll come back and see what you come up with. So you put down, you know, it's going to be shrimp all the time. You know, Texas Rangers are going to win the World Series every year. and All this stuff that you think would make heaven, heaven. And then Christ returns, says, let me, let me see your list. You hand him the list. He doesn't look at it. He says, uh, before I look at your list, here's mine. You know what you would do with your list? You would tear it up. Um, we can't even begin to imagine how wonderful it's going to be. But now I want to talk about, in the remaining time, this is very important, some of the implications of this enfleshment of Jesus for our daily lives. First of all, it's an antidote to Gnosticism. This idea that what's important is spirit or spiritual. Watch out. That heresy is rampant in the church. That what's important this is more important, what we're doing here on Sunday morning in a Sunday school class. That's more important than you taking your kids to McDonald's on Tuesday afternoon. Not really. Every aspect of life has a spiritual dimension to it, if we're aware of that. No place for Gnosticism. Material lives matter. That's what the Incarnation tells us. Look at Matthew 25. Um, this is so important for you and I to understand. Here's Jesus himself um, talking about the, the, the final judgment, Matthew 25, verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, that's fulfillment of the kingdom, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then they say, Well, Lord, when did, when did we ever do that? Um, I guarantee you, when I get to heaven, if Christ said that to me, I'd go, ah, I'm glad you're watching. Look, here's my list. Remember when I ministered to that guy over there? But if, if you're a mature Christian, it's kind of like dancing. You know, when you learn to dance, it's like left foot. But then there comes a time when you don't even think about it anymore. You just learn to dance. That's the way the Christian life ought to be. So that if Christ did come to us and say, you know, I was hungry and you fed me, you'd go, I, don't, I really don't remember doing that. Um, notice... The goats, uh, <laughs> they remember everything. I'm not going to go into the rest of the passage, but the point I'm trying to make is how you and I view other people, not just spiritually, but materially, physically, is part and parcel of the gospel. That's why there's no place for racism in the Christian faith. It's abject sin. Everyone is made imago dei in the image of God. To look down on another person, 
of any race or physical condition or anything else is to slap God in the face. God made the different races. He relishes in them. No place for racism. It also means that biblical ministry to be faithful must always be holistic. Wherever the church, Christian faith has gone in the world, what goes with it? Hospitals, educational institutions. John Calvin in Geneva, this is pre-scientific, but he had the idea that the gospel had something to do with the fact that everybody was getting sick in Geneva because everybody was throwing their chamber pots out on the sidewalks. Now, Calvin was pre-scientific, he, but he thought there was a connection between that and people getting sick. So Geneva's the first place in the world that has a sewer system and garbage collection. He said, there's nothing spiritual about that. Calvin thought so. He said, the welfare of the people of Geneva, if the gospel doesn't affect them physically, it ain't no gospel. We got to care about the phys- physicality of people, not just their spiritual state. Where were the first public schools instituted in the world? Geneva, Switzerland, Calvin. You only got an education back in those days if your parents were rich and they could afford a tutor. Calvin wanted everybody to be able to read so they could read the Word of God. So he institutes this free public education system so everybody can grow up and read. I'm so proud of one of my childhood heroes, Stonewall Jackson. You know, he's a professor at VMI in Lexington, Virginia, and he practiced civil disobedience. It was illegal to teach black children or adults to read. And Stonewall Jackson said, malarkey, they need to read the Word of God. And so he had a Sunday school class every year for black children until he went off to the war. And that Sunday school class continued after the war, too, uh, taught by other people. And so sometimes Christians need to practice civil disobedience. Look at this church. We're not just about saving souls. Because we believe in the holistic materiality of the gospel, that's why the Christian Assistance Ministry exists. San Antonio Metropolitan Ministries, the San Antonio Christian Dental Clinic, KLR. That's about the physicality that the gospel has an impact on. That's why we're talking about resurrecting a prison ministry here. You remember Jesus said, you visited me when I was in prison. We used to have a very robust prison ministry here. We're going to try to revitalize that. Um, After World War II, or before World War II, you know, the church did all of the social justice ministries in America. FDR came along and said, well, let the government do that. And church wrongly handed it all over. You know, until then, all the orphanages, hospitals, universities, name almost all the universities founded before 1850, and they're all Christian, including the University of Texas, founded by Robert Louis Dabney. He was Stonewall Jackson's uh, chief of staff, and he came down here and helped launch the University of Texas, South Carolina University, Columbia, Princeton, Dartmouth. Um, It goes on and on and on and on. my alma mater, Trinity University, which has sold its soul. It's no longer Christian. Um, ministry to the poor. Mother Teresa, as you know, used to minister to people in the gutters of Calcutta. The BBC assigned a project to one of their reporters, Malcolm Muggeridge. He's kind of a you know, gnarly old guy. And he was not a believer. He's an atheist. And they said, we want you to go over with the film crew and... Follow this lady. What? But that's where his paycheck came from. So he reluctantly went over there, met with the nuns, and they said, well, you probably need to know our schedule if you're going to follow us. He said, okay, what is it? We're up at 4 a.m., and we pray till 6 a.m. Then we have breakfast. Then we hit the streets at about 8 a.m., and we minister till 5 p.m., Then we come back and we worship from five to seven. Then we eat dinner. Then we go to bed. (laughs) My verse is going, what have I gotten into? This is hard. Well, his film crews get up with them, follow them around all day long. The 
Mugridge and the film crews are worn out by the time of dinner time, but these nuns are just going like this. And, and then Mugridge is just floored by the fact that they're ministering to these lepers in the gutters. And he asks Mother Teresa, how in the world can you even touch these people? She says, I don't, I'm not touching lepers. I'm taking Jesus into my arms. Mugridge becomes a believer. He wrote a book called uh, A Beautiful Thing for God, uh, based on what he saw. The physicality is these little nuns treat the whole person. Um, your money belongs to God. I'm going for preaching to Mezzalin here, folks. You know, God's such a God of grace. You know what he says to you and me? Whatever you make, keep 90% of it for yourself and do whatever you want with it. All I'm asking is 10. And if you look at it that way, if you're not invested in the kingdom of God, you need to be. Your life will be a whole lot more fulfilled. It means something about how you and I treat our bodies. They're not bad. They're good. We ought to take care of them. Chuck Swindoll, I heard a story. He was preaching at a conference, and he was preaching on sin. Now, Chuck Swindoll weighed almost 400 pounds at one time. And some lady comes up to him after the thing and says, you know, you're a very, very powerful communicator, but I can't take you seriously about sin. He said, what do you mean? <laughs> she said, well, you obviously, uh, the sin of gluttony has a grip on you. Swindoll said, that hit me between the eyes. Chuck Swindoll looks normal now. He's down, you know, 180 pounds or something like that. Um, I remember my first study leave from this church, I went to Ligonier Valley Study Center outside of Pittsburgh, R.C. Sproul. I spent a week with R.C. Sproul. He wasn't real famous then, but I'd read a bunch of his books. And I, so one night, he had me over to his house for dinner. I was kind of intimidated. Sitting there with, and we have dinner, and then R.C., after dinner, lights up a, a cigarette. I grew up in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Nobody smoked. Nobody drank, at least in front of anybody else. And um, I've never really seen committed Christians smoke. Uh, and R.C.'s, <laughs> and so I'm kind of naive. And he, he was talking about something. He says, Ron, do you have any questions? I said, yeah. as a committed Christian, and the, oh, the Surgeon General had just come out with, you know, this is going to kill you. If you. So I said, yeah, as a committed Christian, you know, why do you smoke? Remember, he looked at me and went, do you know my background? I said, no. He said, I was an atheist. I ran with the gangs in the North Hills of Pittsburgh. And then Christ got a hold of me and sanctified me in every area of my life, except this. <laughs> and I, I said to him, I, I was too stupid to shut up. I said, yeah, but, you know, what, if, what about where it says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? I'll never forget it. He looked at me and said, I'm burning incense in the temple. <laughs> but that killed him. That killed R.C. Sproul. That killed him, finally. And he'd be the first to say, it's sin, but for some of the Holy Spirit hadn't, you know, sanctified that part of my life. Um, we can't, this means we can't compartmentalize our lives like this is spiritual and this isn't. Al Capone, everybody knows who Al Capone is. He never missed Mass. Every Sunday he was there. He'd go to confession on Saturday. They probably had to have shifts of priests come in. But he never missed Mass. It was this idea, well, as long as I confess and I go to church, I'm okay. And then rest of the week. You know. And he Mick, gave money to the church. Oh, yeah, and he gave money to the church. So certainly he's home free, right? <laughs> Mickey Cohen, back in the 1950s, was the mafia boss in L.A., Billy Graham comes to town. He's running all the prostitution, gambling, drugs, stuff. Billy Graham comes to town. Mickey Cohen's curious. He goes. Billy Graham gives an invitation. Mickey Cohen goes forward and receives Christ. Imagine you're the counselor down there. And who are you? Mickey Cohen. The Mickey? Yes. So you lead him to Christ. And, of course, they give your name. Then they farm it out to a pastor in town who's near your area. Bless that guy's heart, whoever it was. He calls on Mickey Cohen. And he, Mickey re receives him, and the pastor says, well, you know, this is a great sacrifice you're making. 
Mickey Cohen's calling. Huh? And he goes, yeah, of course you're going to have to give up running prostitution rings, gambling, drugs. He said, I don't plan on doing that. And the pastor says, Mickey, you, you, that's what you have to do. Well, why? I heard a, an actress get up and say she's now a Christian actress, and some athlete got up and said, I know I'm a Christian athlete. You know, <laughs> I, I'm just going to be a Christian gangster, you know. Um, you can't compartmentalize your life. Uh, you know, Sunday is the church at worship. Monday through Saturday is the church at work. Out in the world, you're the salt and light. Um, and this ultimately means, and I'm going to stop here, that this physical life, this bodily life, this materiality, we need to celebrate it and enjoy it. What's the answer to the first question of our Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is man's chief end? And enjoy him forever, meaning him and everything he created. That's why Christmas should be joyous. What a celebrate. But so should the other 364 days of the year. We need to revel. All of this is good. Food. Sex inside God's boundaries. There's nothing dirty about that in God's parameters. Everything we ought to celebrate and we ought to be the most joyful people on the planet. There's a great article uh, by a Reformed theologian named John Piper. And he wrote an article that I love. It's very easy. You can Google it. Here's the title of it. Drinking orange juice to the glory of God. Piper says, you know, you can go through life skimming along and you have your spiritual life, you get fired up about Jesus over here and then the rest of life. You do. But he said, you know, think about drinking a glass of orange juice. You can wash down your toast with it in the morning or you can savor the taste, the texture of the pulp and then give praise to God for that flavor. And, you know, we need to look at everything in life that way. Um, Merry Christmas, joyous Noel, celebrate the Incarnation 24-7, 365, on into eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we are a visited planet, uh, that you became that extraterrestrial that not only visited us, but opened up the gates of eternal life. Thank you that you were willing to pay the ultimate price and actually die a real death. And we thank you that the resurrection is not some just spiritual thing. It's a physical thing. And it means the whole universe is being reclaimed by you and that one day will be restored to its original state, including us. Thank you, Lord, that that's the gospel truth. And as we go to worship or go home, wherever we're going, may we do so in joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.